Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 12, Ghost Ship of the California Desert. Sometime in the 17th century, three Spanish ships owned by a wealthy merchant named Juan Aturbe set out from a port in western Mexico and sailed northwards towards Baja, California, under orders to obtain pearls from the natives. They were, at first, successful, and the ship's holds were filled with pearls. But they met with disaster nonetheless. The first ship became grounded on a sandbar and could not be removed. The second ship was attacked by unfriendly natives and sank. The third ship, now carrying the surviving crew of the first two ships, carried on and sailed up the Gulf of California to the mouth of the Colorado River. Believing that they had found the fabled Straits of Anion, a supposed but ultimately non-existent North American water route between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, the ships sailed up the Colorado River, eventually finding a large lake in the middle of an otherwise arid desert. The ship sailed around the lake for a time, looking to continue the journey to the Atlantic Ocean. However, it soon became clear that the water was receding and the lake was shrinking. Desperate, the captain ordered the ship to sail back the way it came, but as the lake's water level dropped, the ship became mired in the mud of the lake's bottom. Eventually, the lake vanished altogether, and the boat was stuck in the desert. The crew abandoned the ship and headed for the coast on foot, carrying all of the supplies and pearls that they could, but leaving most of the treasure behind. Only a handful of sailors made it out alive and were rescued by Spanish ships on the coast. There are, of course, those who say that nobody made it out alive, and that the bones of the sailors were either covered over by shifting sand dunes, or still lie out in the desert, bleached and exposed. Of course, the ship itself also became a skeleton. The masts collapsed, the sails degraded and decomposed, and the boards began to dry and shrink, eventually falling apart. After a few decades, all that was left was a skeletal form of what used to be the boat, whitened by the effects of the sun. But within that skeletal ship, the treasure remained, ready to be taken by anyone who could find it. Some say that the local Kauia people told stories of the sun-whitened remains of the abandoned ship out in the desert, but that they weren't believed by the white settlers. In 1870, a man named Albert Evans reported seeing the bleached and whitened wood of the ship shining brightly in the moonlight out on the salt flats that had once been a lake, and where the Salton Sea would later appear. When Evans returned to civilization and told the tale, it prompted the formation of a party that went out looking for the ship. The party claimed to have found it 30 miles west of Dos Palmas and 40 miles north of the San Bernardino and Yuma Road, but they came back empty-handed, without anything to show for the trip. Others followed, 
seeking the landlocked shipwreck, and while many reported seeing something that appeared to be the remains of a ship in the distance from a trail or a campsite, none ever managed to get close. It always vanished from their view before they arrived. Whether they were simply mistaking rock formations for the ship, or it was truly appearing and then vanishing, is not clear. Then, in 1878, the story took another, eerier turn. Two German prospectors managed to make it into Yuma, barely alive, starved and dehydrated. The story they told went like this. There had originally been three men in their party. They camped one night approximately 100 miles northwest of Yuma, and that night they saw something truly bizarre. A large ship, under full sail, sailing westward. The men heard the creak of the boards and the talking and singing of the crew. They found the sight both frightening and mesmerizing. The next day, one of the men headed out on his own to look for the ship. When he didn't return, they looked for him, but to no avail. Eventually, they headed back to Yuma, assuming that their companion had been abducted by the phantom sailors and taken to some other world. A search party set out from Yuma, and they found the body of the prospector, dead from thirst and, bizarrely, naked. In 1878, a writer for the San Francisco Examiner joined the party that headed out to seek the ship. One day, as they were considering turning back due to short provisions, a member of the party called out in surprise and directed the writer to look out into the desert. There he saw a large ship at full sail, floating forward on water that had not been present even moments earlier. The writer heard gunshots and turned to look, and when he looked back, both the ship and the water were gone. The landscape again turned to desert. Since then, people in the desert sometimes see a ship sailing above the desert floor as if on long-vanished water, glowing with an eerie light. Some say that the ship still seeks an outlet through which it may return to the ocean, and that until the ancient lake fills again and joins the Colorado River, the ship will be damned to persist in its ghostly voyage across the ancient lake bed. Others claim that the ship and its crew will be freed if the cargo is ever recovered. Commentary The story of the lost ship of the desert has been circulating in California, Nevada, Arizona, and northern Mexico since at least the mid-19th century. The only sources that I can find for the spectral ship are Hector Lee's book, Heroes, Villains, and Ghosts, Folklore of Old California, and S.E. Schlosser's book, Spooky California. Schlosser's account appears to be an expanded version of the spectral ship mentioned briefly in Lee's account, which is far more focused on the adventure of searching for treasure in the California desert. That said, Lee cites sources from the 19th century, indicating that this particular element of legend has been in circulation for a while. While Lee's sources include newspapers and are therefore often taken to be authoritative and accurate as a result, it must be remembered that, during the later half of the 19th century, it was not uncommon for newspapers to run joke stories or tall tales intended for entertainment and often packed with jokes that would have been obvious to a contemporary audience but are often missed by modern readers. A number of paranormal stories, especially but not solely UFO tales from the late 19th century, are supported purely by such newspaper articles. I am not claiming that the stories that Lee cites were intended for humor, but I am saying that it is possible. 
Regardless of whether or not the stories were published in jest or as genuine reporting, the story became quite popular, with newspaper accounts appearing as far away as Philadelphia, and, in 1875, a British publishing house released Joaquin Miller's verse book on the subject, appropriately titled The Ship in the Desert. Hector Lee describes a few attempts to find the ship, but efforts continued on long past the period of the late 19th century that he documents. In 1974, one Larry Justice applied for an excavation permit from the California Department of Parks and Recreation, and the permit application contained the stipulation that Mr. Justice be allowed to keep any precious metals or gemstones found during the excavation. Allegedly, he'd found the ship and wanted to dig into its location and find the treasure. The Department of Parks and Recreation did not issue the permit. As a side note, even as a professional archaeologist, it can be difficult for me to get excavation permits. I have to prove that I know what I am doing, that the information gained from the excavation will be sufficient to justify the destruction of the site I am excavating, and I have to demonstrate that I have identified a curation facility for any and all artifacts found. So I'm not surprised that justice was turned down. Most versions of the story forego the apparition of the ship and focus instead on the supposed whereabouts of the ship and or the various treasure hunters who have searched for the ship, many of them dying in the process. The story is also bubbled up into the general, non-regional public consciousness from time to time and has been featured in many pulp and comic adventure stories. While I find the story of the ship in the desert to be more than a little implausible, I would be lying if I were to say that the thought of gathering some of my archaeology buddies and going to find it has not occurred to me, rather repeatedly, for years. Although Schlosser, in her telling, sets the story in the Mojave, the ship is more often said to have become stranded in the Colorado desert, typically the Salton Basin in California's Imperial County, where a large oscillating lake has appeared and drained over the years, depending on both the precipitation and the particular route that the Colorado River took. The changing route of the river and the alterations to its delta sometimes resulted in water pouring into the Salton Basin, which created a remarkably large lake, but at other times, the route into the basin would silt up and the river would flow directly out to the Gulf of Mexico. Other versions of the story place the ship near El Centro, and others have it clearly in Arizona or in northern Mexico. In addition to variations on location, the nature of the ship itself varies from telling to telling. The ship is sometimes said to be a galleon operating under the orders of the King of Spain, other times a smaller vessel owned by Juan de Iturbe, and sometimes elements of both are combined. Another version of the story is that a Viking longship is abandoned in the Badlands near Mexicali, Mexico. This version often holds that a librarian named Myrtle Botts was provided directions to get to the ship by an old prospector, but either never made it herself or initially found it and tried to return with her husband, but either way, an earthquake struck and the damage cut off her route to the location. According to this story, the instructions are in Myrtle Bott's papers, which are kept at the Pioneer Museum in Julian, California. The museum denies the existence of any such document, but then, of course, they would, wouldn't they? I have also heard stories that claim that the ship is of a Russian design, and occasionally you will hear rumors of other ships, of all different ages, Greek or Roman, medieval, but always European ships, except for one example that I found claiming that it was a Hebrew ship either from King Solomon's navies or carrying one of the lost tribes of Israel. 
I have yet to hear anybody claim that it was an East Asian ship, though some of the sources cited by Lee, while still identifying it as a European ship, do describe it as having characteristics similar to Chinese vessels. Sans the ghost story, this tale bears a resemblance to an Australian story known as the Mahogany Ship. Ghost story or no, is it likely that the lost ship really exists? Well, the story provided at the beginning of this episode is almost certainly false. Don Leylander, a well-respected archaeologist who does contract work in California, is quite knowledgeable about the history of the Spanish exploration of California and the Southwest, and when asked about this for DesertSun.com, he was quite clear that the story of the pearl-bearing ship sailing into a large lake in the desert doesn't match the known historical record. The closest match is a 1540 expedition led by Melchior Diaz, in which the ship sailed up the Colorado River to near the location of present-day Yuma. But that expedition didn't result in a ship lost in the desert. What about an undocumented voyage? As a graduate student, I often spoke with professors of anthropology and history regarding the Spanish maritime expeditions to Western North America, and there was a general acknowledgement that it was plausible that there had been voyages with little to no documentation up the California coastline. That said, these were generally substantial investments on the part of either the Spanish government or wealthy Spanish subjects, and so one would expect some sort of documentation somewhere for a riskier venture, such as charting a channel across the continent linking the oceans. Some versions of the story claim that the ship is the Content, a ship that served Thomas Cavendish, who had raided Spanish ships in the 1580s and, therefore, would presumably have intentionally laid low. The Content and Cavendish's other ship, the Desire, had attacked a Spanish vessel in the Gulf of California and then set sail across the Pacific, with the Content vanishing shortly after the attack on the Spanish ship, presumably having sunk in the Gulf. So the Content was in the right general place, but as Cavendish's goal had been to circumnavigate the globe after raiding the Spanish ships, and this would have required heading west rather than seeking a passage eastward up the Colorado River, it seems unlikely that the content would have undertaken the trip. Regardless, the story of the three Spanish ships seems dead in the water, while an undocumented voyage up the Colorado River is unlikely but possible. What about the large inland sea that drains suddenly? So, the Salton Trough, the large area that encompasses much of southeastern California, southwestern Arizona, and part of northern Mexico, is a large, low area with locations at 269 feet below sea level. Prior to the modern dam system that reduces the Colorado River to little but a trickle at its mouth, the river would have intermittently silted up its outlet and then overflown into the Salton Trough, creating a large inland lake, often called Lake Cahuilla. That would then drain when the natural silt dams near the mouth broke through. It is unclear how long it would have taken to drain, so the idea that a ship could sail into the area and become stranded is not implausible. Moreover, archaeological, historical, geological, and ethnographic evidence in the form of oral stories from the Cahuilla people indicate that the lake was at least partially full during the 16th century. In fact, Melchior Diaz sent a party overland to explore the location, but the fact that he sent a party overland suggests both that there was not a route from the Colorado River at the time, and that the lake took a good deal of time to deplete when cut off from the river. So the dramatic reduction described for this tale seems unlikely. But if you take it as an exaggeration of someone finding that their route back to the ocean cut off and therefore abandoning their ship, well, 
that seems more plausible. And the fact of the matter is that the silting of the mouth of the river and the flooding of the basin has recurred to varying degrees throughout history with episodes in the 18th and 19th century. And tidal actions could push a small ship or boat over the delta even when it is silted over and leave it trapped as the water recedes. So the notion of a ship being stranded out there is not completely implausible. All of that said, the idea that it could remain hidden for centuries, even with treasure hunters actively looking for it, is far less plausible. If it were trapped, it would have been trapped on the old lake bed, which is generally exposed. Even if you account for the possibility of sediment, such as sand, but also potentially finer sediment, covering it over from wind movement, it still seems unlikely that it would remain hidden for so long, especially in an area that is more actively inhabited and traveled now than it was during the 18th and early 19th century. Don't get me wrong, I would love to be wrong and have the lost ship turn out to be real, but I just don't believe it. So then, where do these stories come from? Well, one possibility is that they come from someone spotting an actual boat in the desert. Hector Lee recounts the story of a couple of men who'd put a boat on wheels in 1862, intending to cross the desert and use it to sail down the Colorado River, only to abandon the boat when they discovered that they couldn't get it across the rocky terrain on the east side of the Salton Sink. That is certainly possible, and it makes for an amusing anecdote. Others have pointed to the possibility that rock formations might bear a resemblance to a shipwreck from a certain angle, and could be mistaken for one at a distance, only to vanish when the explorer comes closer and can't see anything that looks like the ship. The fact that the Salton Sink would occasionally fill with water and form such a large lake might, in of itself, have inspired people to create these stories. Speculating on the sources of the story is, admittedly, a lot of fun, but it is still just speculation. What is interesting to me is that the story, despite referring to a strange shipwreck rather than a mineral deposit, bears a strong resemblance in telling and tone to lost mine lore, such as the famous Lost Dutchman's Mine of Arizona. It's almost always old prospectors telling the tale, according to sources. And while some people are said to have found the ship, nobody has ever recovered its riches, and it is courting death to even seek it. Even the version in which it is a Viking ship near Mexicali has an old prospector telling Miss Botts about the find, and a natural disaster creating danger when she went to seek it out. While these stories are not inherently supernatural, they do tend to lend themselves to such embellishments. There are those who say the Lost Dutchman's Mine is cursed, for example. And when you have a tale that involves a shipwreck in the desert, it seems only natural that it will take on aspects of the nautical Flying Dutchman tale the Flying Dutchman not being related to the Lost Dutchman's mine, in which a ship is doomed to a ghostly existence repeating its voyage until some unspecified time, when the conditions are right to release it. All of that being said, I don't actually care about whether the ship is real or not. I'm tempted by the adventure of looking for it, and it's an exciting feeling. Typically, when there's a legend such as this with a ghost story attached, I feel drawn to the ghost story more than anything else, but not in this case. The idea of a treasure hunt in the desert is just too alluring, however implausible it may be. This is one of those stories that makes me want to go out and play Indiana Jones, even if I doubt I'll find anything. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, 
or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghostthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky!